All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you here uh, from New York on the 21st day of February 2017. I'd like to remind you each week, I'm also the author of a newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. And you can subscribe to that by going to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com. Also, like to encourage you to consider signing up for Chen Lin's letter, uh, What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? He's had a stellar track record. You might want to go to chenpicks.com, chenpicks.com to sign up for Chen's letter. Thank you uh, to each of you for listening to this show, making it one of the more popular shows in the Voice America business channel. And uh, encourage you to continue sending along your questions and comments, criticisms and praises to questions for Taylor at gmail.com. Um, and uh, we do want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Without them, we would not be talking to you each and every week. Sponsors for today's show, Dinosert Inc., Golden Predator, Chilean Metals, Arvista Gold Corp., Novo Resources, Uranium Energy Corp., and RN Resources. Last week, Doug Casey was scheduled to be my guest, but unbeknownst to me, uh, some couple hours before showtime, Doug sent a message uh, regretting the fact that he would, would not be able to be with me. So as it turns out, uh, we, we didn't have a guest, and I had to uh, wing it. I was ill-prepared, uh, did the best I could, but the good news is that Doug will be uh, scheduled to be on my show on March 7th. So uh, March 7th, uh, at the time that I'm at the Prospector and Developers Conference in Toronto, I'll be pre-recording that uh, entire show, but Doug is scheduled to be with me uh, for that show. I've titled today's show, Are Stocks in Their Terminal Melt-Up Phase? Peter Grandich, uh, Mira Nanny, and Michael Oliver return as guests. And Peter Grandich, uh, former known as the uh, former Wall Street whiz kid, returns to tell his tell us why he thinks that the U.S. equity markets are in a terminal melt-up stage. And he will also share his thoughts on, on what you should do to protect yourself against the carnage of the next major bear market. Perhaps the worst performing commodity over the past couple of years has been uranium. But I'll be speaking with Michael Oliver just in a couple of seconds here. Um, just to, to ask him what his thoughts are. And he, he seems as though looking at a chart that he sent out to his subscribers uh, the, over the weekend, it looks like there may be some reasons for optimism uh, with respect to uranium. And uh, that would certainly be good news for Amir Adnani, the CEO of Uranium Energy Corporation. Amir will be with me at about a half past the hour to talk about uranium energy uh, and what their plans are uh, if and when we uh, we see a breakthrough in the uranium price. But now we are fortunate, once again, to have Michael Oliver with us. Thanks for joining me again, Michael. Glad to be here, Jay. 
Always good to have you here, and it's OliverMSA.com. I always want to get that in there because OliverMSA.com is where you can go to sign up for Michael's letter and to learn uh, about his service. Last weekend, um, Michael, as I was just noting, you put out a chart on uranium, and I think now looking at it, um, certainly from a momentum point of view of the weekly momentum chart that you put out, looks pretty bullish. What can you tell us about uranium now, and what are your thoughts about that metal? Well, it's uh, of course it's it's an illiquid futures contract, but it does reflect you know the the real world of uh, uranium prices. And, and you're right, it it collapsed more than any commodity over the last several years. <clears throat> and I ran two studies of it. One was a fifty uh, week average momentum study, which is like a one year average almost, and and, and that broke out uh, some months ago and, and had a good percent rally uh, up to. 26 and a half. I think it's trading at 25 right now. But when I ran annual momentum using a three-year average, 36-month average, uh, you know, a longer-term mm-hmm. momentum study, it said, no, you're probably in a, in a basing pattern. Uh, mm-hmm. You've probably seen the low, in fact. But the major breakout level is uh, adjust down about every month uh, with the decline of the 36-month average. It's up above 31 right now to break out. And we're at 25. So there's a way to go. It's $6 or so. But that average comes down every month, and any month we can clear that average is a breakout. And the reason it's a breakout is in 2015, you spent the entire year butting up against the average, trying to get above it, and couldn't do it. So it was structural uh-huh. resistance. Well, if that you can get above that average now, and it's coming down. The average is coming down like one of those leaning buses, you know. The, yeah. <laughs> okay. Right. Uh, then you've got a breakout. And at that point, I would declare uranium is a major bull market. I suspect it's going to happen. Uh, just by looking at the charts, we're not there yet, and to be 100% sure that it's going to happen, I want to see that average crossed. I suspect sometime later this year, uh, uranium's going to break out and oh. uh, become a bull again. Uh, and I think you've probably seen the low in it. Uh, and probably the best way to participate in that kind of thing is is not in the commodity itself, but in uh, the producers of it. And mm-hmm. uh, I didn't offer any specifics on that, but... Uh, uh, you want well, your guests just like <laughs> to provide an answer to that. <laughs> well, yeah, Amir, we're going to be speaking to Amir Adnani, the chairman of yeah. um, uh, Uranium Energy Corporation, and I know he's looking at a, something like a forty-dollar price to uh, to go at back into production. He's one of the lower-cost producers in the industry, but he needs to see something like that to make uh, economic sense. Yeah. Uh, to put his capital back to work. But in any event, uh, that's very encouraging, I think, Michael. So we might see one of those whoosh moments if we get through that long-term I, I moving think so. I, I think it's a later-in-the-year issue, you know, a, cu- a couple quarters maybe. I, but I suspect this year uranium will shift the balance and will uh, turn into a momentum bull at that point. Uh, and by the way, even buying uranium in the low 30s, let's say, is very cheap. It was in the 80s. Before you know, yeah. back I think 2011 or so. So right. we're still dealing with low prices. So uh, even though you, if you wait till the low 30s, it's not a like you're reaching high. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, a good good point. Very good point. Well, so we might see uranium might be one of the better performing energy sectors this year. You reckon? Yeah, huh? I think so. I think oil's probably got another sp- spike in it. I think we're probably in that attempted spike right now. But I don't trust it much beyond, let's say, the upper 50s if it got there. So far, the high of the year has been above 55 or in the 54s right now. I'm looking for oil to not be a commodity leader this year. I think the okay. grains will likely overcome it. Yes. All right. But your your big emphasis, as I take it from the weekend, is the S&P 500. You're very concerned that we're in a melt-up phase, possibly. We talked about this a little bit last week when you compared mm-hmm. – 
the S and P uh, chart to the to the pinnacle of the uh, of the Chrysler Building in New York. A very interesting comparison I there. That, that uh, picture holds up. Um, I think we're in a spike. Uh, by the way, the S&P historically, if you go back to the last few major tops, 2007 was a wide distributive top. Many months mm-hmm. been up there uh, in the mid to high 1500s. Uh, the 2000 top was a wide, one-year-wide distribution top, no spikes. Okay, uh, It's rare. You have to go back to 87. In fact, I was fortunate enough to catch that crash. And it, it has the same attributes now that we did then. Namely, you're spiking to the upside. You're not getting a distributive top, a, a sideways top. You're getting a runaway. Uh, what happens is you transition into the next quarter. Back then, it was in August. Uh, you peaked August of 87. You slumped off into September, the final month of the quarter. By the time you opened October, 87. The three-quarter moving average had come up, and the problem with that was that you were in close proximity to touching it. You couldn't, mm-hmm. because you'd already used it twice in the prior year as support. So uh-huh. coming back a third time is like uh, you know leaning against a plywood door. You bump it once or twice, and the third time you go through. Well, we have the same pattern now in momentum. You have two times the Brexit vote. Remember, the market sold off in late June. And again, the Trump election, there was a sell-off prior to the explosion that took you down close to the three-quarter average, just like the Brexit vote did. Neither one of them touched the three-quarter mm-hmm. moving average. Mm-hmm. Starting in Mar- uh, April, three-quarter average is now projected to jump above 2220. That's 5.9% below the current market. Therefore, mm-hmm. if between now and then you get a, quote, buying opportunity, it gets you back down to 2220 area, the market's in trouble. Ah, so this, in fact, is an exhaustive spike, and it has those attributes. Uh, you can't sneeze. Uh, if you sneeze, you're gonna, <laughs> it's going to come apart. Uh, and, and because of the upside spike behavior, I tend to think the downside will be rapid if triggered, instead of uh, like a distributive top where you, your downside is more layered. You yes, know? yes. So it could be uh, so. So really, very dangerous then potentially. Uh, sudden up, bring sudden about. down. Yeah, it's yeah. equal and opposite. Yeah. All right, Michael. With two with two minutes left here yet, I have to also ask you to comment. Uh, you you raised the rhetorical question. You said, "How come intermediate trend of momentum for gold, euros, uh, the the euro, and uh, the T bonds have shifted to positive?" Well, do you have a theory or two as to, uh, might explain well, why I'm gold? I'm not sure of that. They've been yeah. contrary to the S and P. And when I say intermediate momentum, I'm measuring these markets uh, against their ten week moving average, for example, uh-huh. not, not some real long term thing. But all three of those markets, T bonds. Uh, gold and uh, the euro have been contrary to the intermediate trend of the S and P, and the three of the, the gold especially, but it's evident even on the euro, even though it's backed off in the last few days. And same with the bonds, they have turned a corner on intermediate momentum back to positive. Now, given that they are inverse to the S and P, I have to think that if those turns are valid, even if if sluggish. Uh, mm-hmm. then it should be that the S&P has an intermediate downturn soon. Mm-hmm. And like I said before, you can't afford an intermediate downturn in the S&P, one that produces 5 or 6% of, quote, correction, because if it does, it's going to snowball into something larger. Mm-hmm. So I find it very interesting those three inverse markets to the S&P have turned positive on the intermediate trend, um, which makes me think the S&P might be ready for an intermediate downturn. Yeah, very interesting. Well, one of the things I do like about your work, in addition to its accuracy, is the interrelationships that you're always paying attention to between markets. And uh, and, and I know that from a fundamental point of view, you understand markets as well as any free market practitioner I know. 
but at the same time, you don't allow your own ideas to get in the way of what the market is collectively, the collective wisdom of the market, I should say. And I think that's one of the reasons, uh, in addition to your years of experience with this business, why you've been so accurate. I want to thank you again, Michael, for being with us. And as always, I, I hope we can have you on again next week. Great, great, Jay. I look forward to it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, folks, don't go away because Amir Adnani will be with us right after the commercial break. He is the CEO of Uranium Energy Corp. And, uh, well, if Michael's right and we see a sharp upturn in the price of uranium, uh, some of these uranium stocks, and there aren't many of them, quite frankly, but uranium energy could be one that we, you might want to really keep an eye on. So stick around and hear what Amir Adnani has to say right after the break. Orin Resources is a Canadian-based gold exploration company focused on the company's flagship Committee Bay project located in northern Canada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. The company's current resource outlined by drilling thus far stands at 1.1 million ounces of gold at over 8 grams per ton. Orin is operated by the same team that founded Asanko Gold, which is constructing a major gold mine in West Africa, and Caden Resources, which was recently purchased in November for over $200 million. Golden Predator Mining Corp., a well-financed gold exploration company operating in Canada's Yukon. Focused on advancing its Three Aces project, a high-grade gold project located in the southeast Yukon with gold and quartz outcrops at surface. Ongoing work includes trenching, road work, drilling, and bulk sampling. Golden Predator also holds the past-producing Brewery Creek project located near Dawson City, Yukon. Golden Predator, a company working closely with Yukon First Nations. Golden Predator trades on the Canadian venture market as GPY and in the USOTC market as NTGSF. Chilean Metals is a Canadian junior exploration company focusing on high potential copper, gold prospects in Chile and Canada. Chilean Metals Zulima property is a Candelaria-like prospect, one of the largest mines in the world. The company has begun its drill program in Chile on its Zulima property and should be completed by the end of February. We also own a 3% royalty on future production on Tech Resources Copa Query property, potentially worth millions of dollars annually. This is the time to invest in Chilean Metals, a discovery story with a hedge. Traded TSX Venture under symbol CMX. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. listening to turning hard times into good times with your host jay taylor if you have a question or comment about today's show jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790 that's 1-866-472-5790 you can also send an email to questions taylor at gmail.com that's questions the number four taylor at gmail.com now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really glad to have with me once again Amir Adnani. Uh, Amir uh, is the chairman and director. Uh, he's a founder of Brazil Resources, which we've also had uh, as a sponsor of this show in the past, and he's uh, was with them since 2005, uh, or I should say since 2005, he has served as a chief executive officer and president and director of Uranium Energy Corp., 
And that's the company we want to talk to Amir about today. That company trades on the New York Stock Exchange, uh, and its symbol is a UEC. There's uh, about 136 million shares out earlier today, trading at about $1.66 in U.S. money, giving it a market cap for around $226 million. Thanks for joining me again, Amir. Hi, Jay. It's good to be back on your show. Always good to have you with me. Uh, you are a very highly acclaimed young entrepreneur, Doug Casey, who has been on this show and is scheduled to come on on the 7th of March. I know has uh, has you as one of his leading uh, entrepreneurs in the in the resource sector. And uh, Casey, of course, has been a very successful investor, uh, has has a uh, a good grasp on this sector, I think, as, as well as anybody. So I would I think that's a feather in your cap, Amir. But I uh, thank you again for being with us. Uh, uranium prices are up about 40% since November's low. It was actually down around $17.80 a pound. Unbelievable. Um, what, what are the factors that have been driving the increase in price? Because uh, that's a pretty sharp increase. There has been a sharp increase uh, since uh, November of last year. And when you look at, um, you know, the old adage, uh, the cure for low prices is low prices. At around uh, $18 per pound or $20 per pound, the uranium price is basically below any uranium miner's cost of production. Mm-hmm. Jay, that's, uh, you know, that's just, it just doesn't work. And you get to the point where not a single mine on the planet can make money and you start to definitely feel pressure on the supply side. And that pressure started to really show itself in the news that came out in early January from Kazatomprom, which is um, the country of Kazakhstan's uh, state uranium mining company and the world's biggest uranium mining company, announcing production cuts, which amounts to about 4% of global supply. And I think that news, coupled with some production cuts from last year by other uranium producers, has combined to finally... Uh, send uh, enough of um, upward pressure into the uranium price. We've seen the uranium price, as you mentioned, come up 40% since the November lows. Uh, in and around um, $25 per pound right now in the spot market. Jay, this is still a uh, long ways off from where the marginal cost of production is in the business, which is $40 per pound, and where a number of feasibility studies and analysts expect the incentive prices to bring new uranium mines online which is $75 per pound. So we've got ways to go, but it's heading in the right direction. We're seeing a record number of nuclear reactors being built around the world. And whether it's issues around uh, air pollution and air quality in the biggest cities of China and India, or energy security, which is, be- which is becoming a big topic now, especially for the new administration in the U.S., uh, I think nuclear power is starting to fit very well into global energy matrix as a clean, carbon emission-free, low-cost and scalable way of generating electricity. Uh, so you've had a, a good deal of, of um, you've had a lot of cuts in production, which has decreased your supply. That's driven the price to a great extent, but you're also seeing considerable demand growth, uh, according to what you're telling me here. And that's really the, the right formula to see a price turn around. Uh, so we're starting to see the supply cuts. We're starting to see demand pick up. And so the overall picture looks very promising right now. 
Excellent. Well, you mentioned the Trump administration. Uh, can, can you shed some light on that? Uh, how do things look now going forward over the next four years compared to the past eight years? Uh, will there be a difference, do you, do you think, with Donald Trump in the White House? Uh, there certainly uh, are some political considerations and changes uh, that, uh, that will have impact, no doubt about it. And he, it starts with the fact that uh, we had um, in President Obama someone who was uh, reluctantly supportive of nuclear power over eight years. Uh, nuclear power just didn't receive the same kind of support from his administration as renewable sources of power did. Mm-hmm. Uh, Donald Trump has already, President Trump has already indicated support for nuclear power, and he is elected or nominated an energy secretary in uh, Rick Perry, uh, who really is a believer in all the above strategy that we need a mix that is made up of uh, not only uh, uh, sources like coal and natural gas and renewables, but that nuclear power, which already really, you know, already is a bedrock of electricity generation in the U.S. It's 20% of the power generation in the U.S., 65% of the carbon-free electricity generation in the U.S., that these things need to be supported, that nuclear power has to be supported. You also have the retirement of Harry Reid, the Senate Majority Leader, a, a Democrat who was uh, really someone that was um, opposed uh, to uh, nuclear power expansion. I think his retirement will pave the way for more Democrats that really see a linkage between nuclear power and the issues around climate change to be more supportive and lend their support, something that in the, um, during the uh, kind of the, the, the Harry Reid era, uh, maybe uh, they were getting behind uh, the Senate majority leader and some Democrats were reluctant to support nuclear power. So I think the political winds have changed in a way that is positive for nuclear power, it is positive for uranium mining in the U.S. Uh, the issue around uh, security of supply is a big theme in uranium and nuclear power in the U.S., Jay. The U.S. Mm-hmm. is importing 95% of its uranium requirements uh, from foreign sources. Russia and Kazakhstan are large suppliers of uranium to the U.S. And so there really will be a push, in our opinion, towards seeing more domestic sources of uranium get developed in the U.S. to meet the needs of 100 nuclear reactors that are operating in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, I notice uh, Rick Perry, of course, was a former governor of Texas, and that's where you're located. That's, that's your main operation is in Texas, uh, your, uh, your mining operations there. Uh, so I guess you, you probably have some knowledge of Rick Perry. He probably is very favorably inclined towards nuclear energy, I suppose. I'm just uh, in my office right now, and I'm, I'm actually looking at a picture of myself and uh, Rick Perry on my shelf there. Uh, you know, we know, um, we know him very well because um, he's the longest-serving governor of Texas uh, from 2001 to 2015. That's just about the time that our company, Uranium Energy Corp., was uh, has been in existence, uh, and we've been busy and focused on Texas as our main uh, for, uh, area for uranium exploration development and where we even achieved uranium production in 2010. All of this happened while Rick Perry was the governor. So Uranium Energy Corp, uh, JR Company, we have our offices in Corpus Christi in South Texas. And uh, during the time while Rick Perry was the governor, we permitted two uranium mines, our Palangana Goliath projects, our Hobson facility was completely rebuilt and f- refurbished. And we generally felt and saw great support uh, from him and his office towards uh, seeing more uranium mining get developed uh, within the state of Texas. Of course, uh, 
Texas has had um, incredible uh, economic growth uh, during um, the, this period and also it really is the energy capital of the U.S. Um, so I think a lot of these policies um, uh, he will bring with him as the, as the new incoming energy secretary. And, and I think it's a big advantage for UEC that we have uh, that connection and background uh, with them. Having said that, our executive chairman, Spencer Abraham, is the former U.S. Energy Secretary mm -hmm. under the uh, George W. Bush administration. And so when you look at our company, we have not only the right track record and background in Texas, but we also have the people that have previously run the Department of Energy, that have worked in Republican administrations and understand the issues that will be important to this new administration coming in. And Spencer Abraham is um, really a, 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 a great asset for us to have as our executive chair. And uh, people like Scott Melby, who's our executive VP, he's the former president of the Uranium Producers of America, former president of Chemical Inc., uh, one of you know, the world's largest uranium producer. Uh, there's a really great depth and skill set and knowledge uh, in the UEC executive team uh, that can um, that can tackle this incredible opportunity in front of us now to become a leading uranium mining company in the U.S. at a time that it is desperately needed to have more domestic production of uranium. Well, there's no question, Amir, that you've always been able to attract uh, quality people, um, and I, I guess that's one of the reasons that uh, Doug Casey has identified you as uh, one of the leading entrepreneurs, uh, younger entre entrepreneurs in the resource sector. But I have to ask you, you were able to raise $26 million in the uh, middle of January at a time when the uranium price was still, you know, it, it, it is still very depressed, but even more so. Uh, kudos to you for being able to raise that kind of money in such a horrible market. But what are, what are your, uh, what are you going to do with that money? What are your plans going forward in 2017 for uranium energy? Uh, well, first of all, thank you, Jay, and um, uh, for the for the observations on our on our raise. It is a tough environment still to raise uh, money in the uranium sector, and um, I think it speaks um, uh, volumes that it really is a vote of confidence in our team, and in our assets, and in our strategy uh, that we were um, successful in raising capital. Uh, I have to tell you that um, you know back in 2005 when we started this business, we were probably at the time one of 20 uranium companies in the world. By 2007, the uranium price had quadrupled. We were one of 600 uranium companies in the world. And uh, today we're back to seeing the, a low uranium price and our company being uh, back to probably being one of 15 or 20 uranium companies in the world. But today more than ever, we're very advanced. We're a production ready company. We have fully licensed uh, processing facility in South Texas or Hobson plant which obviously we didn't have when we started out 11 or 12 years ago. So I guess what I'm trying to say, Jay, is that there's a scarcity of companies in the uranium sector uh, that have the people, that have permitted facilities, that have projects, uh, that have uh, been drilled already where there's an understanding of where the uranium is. And I think the successful raise is an, is an indication of that, that unlike the silver space or the oil and gas space where you have hundreds of companies that are active that you can invest in. In uranium, there are less than 10 companies with production capability, and our company belongs to this very exclusive club. What we plan to do with this race is to continue to advance our projects, our Burke Hollow project, for example. We're starting a drilling program. That's a project in South Texas, just 40 miles away from our Hobson processing plant. It's part of our hub and spoke strategy, where the hub is the central processing plant at Hobson with 
2 million pounds per year annual capacity. And our various projects that are going to become a, a source of feed for that project using the in-situ recovery method, which is a whole other topic uh, we can touch on. And, uh, you know, Jay will look to make acquisitions. We'll look to really expand our business, taking advantage of what is still the low, a low point in the uranium market. Yes, things mm-hmm. have turned around, and we've seen a turnaround in the uranium price. Uh, but in a way, I get more excited about the fact that it's still a bit tough out there because it gives me an opportunity to make acquisitions, grow the business. This is what we've done uh, at UEC over the last five years. We've been making ac- acquisitions. We've been aggressive. And as you mentioned at the beginning of the presentation or this interview, um, as founder and chairman of uh, Brazil Resources, nowadays called gold mining, we've done also the same thing. We've taken advantage of the commodity cycle downturns to make very accretive acquisitions. So it's a model that we understand very well. And I think we'll be able to take advantage of the, the same dynamic in the uranium business with a very strong balance sheet and basically a war chest that we now have as a result of this raise that we did in January. All right, Amir, we're we're really quickly running out of time here. If you could take a a minute or so, talk about the in-situ recovery method and what advantages that gives you. It gives you a cost advantage, perhaps, and give our listeners a sense, if you could, as to where you might fit in in the industry overall from a cost perspective. Well, I mean, in a nutshell, and since we're pressed for time, I would say any listener who's interested to learn about this low-cost technology, which is also environmentally friendly, they should visit uraniumenergy.com, our website, and we've got an animation that shows how this technology works. It is very unique, and in no other commodity does this technology get used to the extent it does in uranium mining, where today it's accountable for 40%, that's 40, 40%, of global uranium mining. It's by far the lowest cost way of mining uranium, so projects that use this method, including ours, are in the uh, lowest quartile cost or on the low end of the cost curve. And um, it's an alternative way, of convention- uh, alternative way of mining uranium than conventional mining. So instead of uh, moving earth to mine uranium, we use uh, deposits that are hosted in sandstone that are permeable, and we use solution to recover the uranium out of the ground in a very environmentally benign way and in a very low-cost way. I have to leave it at that because, you know, it's, we're running out of time. But, again, at uraniumenergy.com, we've got a great animation that shows this low-cost method where our company is the leader in this space and using this method in the U.S. And the technical team that we have or individuals that were part of the pioneers of this method, this, this method was invented 40 years ago in places like South Texas in the United States and mm-hmm. places like Wyoming. And uh, so there's a great history of this method in the U.S. And the team that we have are individuals that were part of the very beginnings of this method to find uranium. And that's part of the technical expertise and advantage that we have is the team that we've assembled uh, that we're very proud of. And, are, you know, collectively, we're big shareholders of our company as well and are very much aligned with our shareholders. Very good, Amir. We will have to leave it go at that. Low cost. Uh, environmentally friendly techniques and uh, that also should uh, make what you're doing more palatable to some of those who might be reluctant to mining in general. So thank you very much, Amir, for being with us and we'll look forward to keeping up with your story, uh, especially if we get through that $36 
uranium price that Michael Oliver is saying we need to get through. And I guess 40 bucks, uh, once you can get into production, things Michael thinks we'll see a, a pretty strong move after we get through those levels. So let's hope so for your sake. Thanks very much for being with us, and uh, we'll look to do it again sometime soon, Amir. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jake. Well, well, folks, don't go away. We're going to be right back with Peter Grandich right after the break. And Peter thinks that we're in a very dangerous melt-up phase for the equity markets. And um, Michael Oliver agrees with him on that as well. So we'll be right back with Peter Grandich. Novo Resources focuses on the exploration and development of gold projects. Its flagship asset is the Beaton's Creek Gold Project in Western Australia, where it is currently processing a 30,000-ton bulk sample. Novo also controls 100% interest in the Blue Spec Gold Antimony Project, where it is conducting a 10,000-meter drill program. The company has over $7 million in cash and enjoys strong shareholder support from the likes of Eric Sprott and Newmont Mining. It trades in Canada and the U.S. under the symbol NVO and NSRPF, respectively. Dynasert is a global leader in carbon emission reduction technologies. Created for use in diesel engines, the hydrogen unit has been proven to reduce carbon emissions by up to 40%, increase torque, improve engine oil quality, and provide up to 19% in fuel savings. Our leading edge technology is designed for tractor trailers, rail, marine, and newly developed for diesel engine cars. Reducing the amount of greenhouse gases provides benefits to the environment, to communities and businesses, and to our shareholders. Uranium Energy Corps, NYSE Market, UEC, is a leader in the coming bull market in uranium. With spot uranium up more than 40% in two months, the new bull market is just starting. UEC has the cash, the licensed resources, the permitted processing center, the advanced technology, and the experienced team to lead this market. Get to know this exciting company now by visiting uraniumenergy.com. NYSE Market, UEC. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Peter Grandich. And Peter is a frequent guest on this show, and I like to have him here to help us try to live up to our name, Turning Hard Times into Good Times, because Peter has discovered a truth about life uh, that I think a lot of people uh, don't really recognize, and that is that good times in terms of human contentment, joy, peace, happiness, those kind of emotional positives are not guaranteed by wealth and fame, power, those kind of things that we seem to be chasing after all the time. Peter knows that because he has had, well, he's had a lot of wealth and been a pretty famous guy as well. And I've known Peter for a long time, probably three three decades or so. And um, I've never known him to be more happy than he is now. 
So uh, thanks for joining me again, Peter. Uh, always a pleasure, and you're right. It's hard to imagine, but it is 30 years that you and I have known each other. It sure is, and uh, I remember, you know, before technology is what it was or what it is today, um, I remember going to some of your conferences and uh, enjoying them, and, and you still have a lot of things going on down there in New Jersey, and I want to touch on that today if we can a little bit uh, towards the end of the sure. show. But, um, you know, it's really... Yeah, I mean, it's a, we we've been we've we've been through a lot of different times together, through some rough times, some good times financially, uh, and some tough times financially. And the sector that you were involved in, and I'm still involved in, is sort of a manic depressive sector. I mean, boom and bust, and you have times when money flows easy, and people get reckless, and they get crazy, and they make lots of money, and then they turn around and lose it all. So it's a it's really. Um, a different kind of a, it's really not the healthiest environment to be in, I must say. Uh, but in any event, um, you know, we've, as I say, we've known each other for a long time. Um, I want our listeners to sort of to learn about your current activities, Peter, what you're doing. Uh, but for the sake of discussion, can you tell our listeners, tell us a little bit about what you're doing now and why you decided to leave uh, the, what you were doing before? Sure. So uh, you're right. Uh, for from 1984, when I first came as stockbroker, by 1995, I had been a manager of some hedge funds and a mutual fund. And really, from the late 80s through 2013, my primary source of personal income and interest was the metals and mining industry. I did start back in 2001 a separate Christian-based uh, company that specialized in servicing professional athletes, but. Throughout that time, uh, until uh, January 1, 2014, my interest is mostly was in the metals and mining. And you're absolutely right. I think it's one of the best descriptions I heard. But it's, I think you have to be a manic depressive to stay in it. You, you said boom and bust, but to me it always seemed like there was more bust than boom. And uh, the good times didn't seem to last anywhere near as long as the bad times in the metals and mining. But uh, nevertheless, uh made a decision after making and losing millions of dollars a couple of times and once being a legend in my own mind and uh, turning the Ten Commandments into the Ten Suggestions. Uh, as the new millennium took hold, my faith came stronger and my desire for more money lessened, thankfully. And by the end of 2013, I made it just a decision to uh, just focus on two things, the, the Christian Sports Management Company and Christian Sports Ministries in general. I spent uh, 13 years with the New York Giants doing Bible study in chapel, and I'm still very involved in sports ministry. But nevertheless, uh, I, I still uh, look at the markets. I do not uh, write about them for any type of profit. I manage no one's money but my own. I am part of a financial service group, and within that group there are guys that handle the people's equities and things of that nature. Ironically, my end is the insurance end, but I still speak about markets and economies uh, because of a love and the fact that I felt that God had blessed me a little bit with some uh, some knowledge in that area. Mm-hmm. And uh, you and I spoke a week ago after I had written something about, for the first time using the terminology, since before the new millennium, I wrote a piece that said we are now entering a melt-up. And I had mm-hmm. said that there hadn't been only two others that I've seen like this in my 30-something years uh, early 1987 and late 1999, and I have written to my readers of my blog 
that I believe we're now in a similar uh, situation. The only thing worse than those two is the country socially, politically, and economically is far worse off than it was during those two periods. So when the inevitable uh, meltdown from the melt-up occurs, uh, we will not most likely be able to rebound in the quick fashion that we did both in uh, 87 and 2000. And, and of course, obviously, I, I presume you're going to want to speak a little bit why I feel that way. But that's really the generality of, A, what I'm doing and what brought us today to have a discussion. Yeah. Um, well, certainly the meld-up image is, is something that Michael Oliver, who was on our show the first segment today, uh, he's certainly with you on that. And a lot of Austrian economists see it that way too, Peter. You know, all this money that's just punched into the system to try to keep things going, it's artificial. And what people don't realize is it's based on debt. Our money is created from debt. It's not asset-based money. It's not a gold or a silver-backed money. It's debt money. So the more debt, I mean, it's it's perverse really because the more they print, the more debt we have and the more people get themselves into trouble, corporations, countries, individuals, and um, I presume, I mean, that's the economic side of things, but you mentioned socially, and uh, I don't know if what other words you used economically, morally. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that. Where do you think, how do you think we compare now with 1987 and the year 2000? Sure. Those are pretty traumatic I biggest, events. I think the biggest thing, sorry, Jay, I think the biggest issue there is I can't recall in 87 and 2000. Uh, such a divided country as we have now. Uh, I don't think half the population in those periods hated the other half of the population yeah. as as it, it clear to me is, is the case now. There seems to be no middle ground. The middle, Not only has the middle class have evaporated in America, middle ground seems to have, we seem to be very tilted to the right or very tilted to the left. Now the left gets a lot more of the media coverage because the media itself is is made up of mostly a majority of people that think left. I'm not here to discuss which is right or wrong. I'm just being rationalized and looking at a picture. And so so we have that. Then we have even political, I consider political paralysis. Uh, I find it hard for any uh, Republican or Democrat group to, to demonstrate to me uh, in maybe a couple decades of real sound fiscal policy. Uh, yeah. As you noted, debt has you know grown exponentially. It really took off during the Obama administration, but there were Republicans there too that participated in that. Uh, I don't see where it is easier to be a business person. The majority of my clients are small to bis- mid-sized business owners, and to almost every single one of them, they will speak about how much more difficult it is to operate a business from all sorts of things, from regulation to dealing with people and what you can say and can't do and rules and things of that nature. And then, of course, uh, economically, if you don't look at what what an index is doing at this moment, the Dow or something, and you looked at us from an economic standpoint, I I think we're in really deep trouble. Uh, The debt is beyond the point now where I think principally, I don't know how it ever gets paid off, certainly not in your or my lifetime, and mm-hmm. maybe not even our children or grandchildren's lifetime. And if there's really a, a substantial increase in interest rates, I think you can start making an argument on how it will be difficult to service that debt. And then we don't even think anymore or talk about more of the localized issues. Here in New Jersey, where I'm located, we have a tremendous problem 
uh, with government workers' pensions underfunded. Oh, and yes. You can go through that in the corporate world. And, and today there's an article on Market Watch, and I would urge people to read about it, how the Census Bureau has done studies now showing that America is in the worst position possible in decades in terms of savings and being prepared for retirement. And yet there's a small percentage group that's doing extremely well, and, you know, maybe it's the people that live and work on Wall Street and a few other areas, but mostly in most other areas of the nation, people are struggling now more than they struggled 20 or 30 years ago. So to me, and and I guess I can say, because I am out of the prognostication game, I don't have anything to sell, there's not anything, I'm just an individual speaking, but to me, I would say it's a day, it's a week or a month from now, it's kind of like bottle rockets when we were kids. I don't know if you remember Jay or if you ever did that. Yeah. You put the little firecracker that was on a stick, and you got all excited. And you lit it up, and for a few seconds, maybe it was an eternity. As a kid, it went up, and some went up just a little ways, and others went way up, but they all blew up and came back down to earth. And that's <laughs> the inevitable thing that's going to happen in, in, the, in the manner that the stock market here in the U.S. is behaving. And one other thing I think that's important that's not being discussed at all is both the, the geopolitical and economies outside the United States. I don't think people have understand how critical China was since the millennium that held the world economy together because of the strength mm. it had coming into this millennium. And that strength is gone. They are no longer the engine they once were. And when you look at that and you look at Europe and you throw in everything else that's happening socially, economically, and politically, I don't know how people can expect the U.S. Uh, economy and markets to do well when everything else around it is in the position it's at, even if you want to give better value to the U.S. than I do at the moment. So with high valuations, sentiment off the charts, the complacency has never been this high. The NASDAQ today relative strength index just went above where it was before the tech bubble blew up. I mean, that's how overbought markets are, even from the technical one. Your gentleman you have is a far more qualified to speak about technicals than I. So it's just, it, it really truly is not a question of if in my heart. It's only when, and I don't think it's more than a day, a week, or a month before we're talking of at least a sharp correction, and that's all it will be viewed at before. But because of everything else that I just shared with you is so much more worse off than it was in 87 and 2000, I don't think when the inevitable big pullback comes, I don't think the market's going to be able to bounce back and go back to new highs like it did in 87 and 2000. All right. Well, when you have this division that you spoke of in the country where people are hating each other for just for being on the other side, essentially, and no one or at least it seems to me, at least from the left, but it's also true from the right, people are not willing to sit down and listen to the other side at all. It's just trying to shout down everybody. So, Peter, if we have another, you know, 2008, 2009 scenario uh, in which, you know, maybe the next time there's, well, there's no China to bail us out, there's, do you, what do you think the policymakers will do? Let's say we have another stock market debacle like we had in 2008, 2009, what will be the policy response this time, Peter? What do you think they can do? I, I don't know what they can do. Monetarily, they've shot. I mean, I, you know, I guess they can always create a, a QE5 or some quasi-system uh, and, and flood the banking system with money again and start forgiving these loans and, you know, this or what have you the case is. 
but uh, when you look around and let, let's just if, if we have a minute let's just first look yeah. at Europe there's no question now that Britain is not going to be the lone duck that's going to move away from the European Union. The, 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 the political movements in France and Italy are moving to the hard right. It'll only take one more major country to make a movement out of the European Union. It even looks like Merkel is very beatable in an election right now. So yeah. I, don't, I see trouble for the European Union. Now, we also can look at China. China is in no way, shape, or form uh, the 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 massive producing uh, growth machine that it once was. It's still going to grow. It's not going to go to negative growth, but it has a whole bunch of issues. So I ask people and all, and then they say, well, the U.S. is great. It's got great multinational companies. I said, okay, but where's their business going to grow from? You can only right. buy back so much stock from cheap debt that you borrowed and, mm. and get you know short-term uh, earnings uh, relief from that. But eventually, you have to sell more widgets. And you have to make more money. And, uh, you know, productivity is dropping like an anchor here in the U.S. I mean, it's, it, it really concerns me greatly uh, to the point where I would say that in 33 years of being in and around Wall Street, I've never been this concerned about the future. Now, I'm, I'm safe in my personal faith belief because of what I've chosen to believe and where I believe what's really important for me mm-hmm. is my life after this one. But for those mm-hmm. only concerned about life here and presently on Earth, I think it's a very, very difficult time ahead. Well, it's hard to argue with that from my perspective as well, Peter, because, uh, you know, you get, you got to sell more widgets, but if you've destroyed the middle class, who's going to buy them? Uh, if you have, you know, one-tenth of one percent of the population getting filthy rich beyond anything they could ever consume and the rest of the population becoming poverty-stricken, then, you know, the parasites have eaten away the carcass and there's nothing left, and it's, uh, it's really sad. Well, I think the, the problem, and you brought out, well, what will they do is people will, you know, immediately think the government will have to do something and solve it, and the, the problem is the very people that led to the problem. Look, Jay, you don't have to look past the fact of what happened last time, and before we run out of time, I think this is critical. People didn't understand exactly what happened. They didn't understand all this thing about mortgages and things and mm-hmm. how did you know trillion dollar be lost, you know, and but they then they heard. Well, I heard even these financial firms they actually took the other side. They actually sold this stuff to these people, yeah. knowing it was no good. Yet you know, no one really of any consequences went to jail and all. But the reason right. people didn't understand it because they don't understand finances. And I always said to people, imagine if you came home tonight and you heard this story that GM. Ford and, and Chrysler were all found guilty of not only making cars they knew were going to crash, but they bought life insurance on the people they sold the cars to, <laughs> so when they crashed, they would make twice the money. Well, that's what the financial world did in the last financial right. crisis. Nothing's right. changed, Jay. I'm going to tell you now, you can just Google uh, fines, problems with financial institutions, and you'll get hundreds of pages of things that have continued from there, from interest rates uh, to fixing, you know, foreign currencies to everything. I don't think the financial world changed one iota. And so if and when this terrible time or even a, a typical downtime comes between the politicians and the financial world, I don't think either one can muster up anything to save us this time. I think when this next time comes, we're going to pay for it for a very long time. 
No, I think you're right about that. Well, Peter, I, I certainly agree with you and your uh, your sense of the eternal, and that life doesn't end here, and that um, you know there is uh, there there is a a better life ahead for those who have faith in uh, in the promises that are given to us by our Creator. But in the meantime, though, we still do have to live here, Peter, as long as God gives us breath, uh, and we do need to look after our families as best we can. Uh, I don't know if we're going if this thing is going to end in some sort of a deflationary debacle or a, a hyperinflationary event or I guess nobody really knows except the creator himself. But what is your suggestion for people now aside from and 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 perhaps the most important thing you and I would both agree on is that faith is the most important thing that the sense unless you really choose to believe that there's nothing after this world is over uh, after this life is over uh, I don't believe that for, for various reasons we don't have time to go into now. But what would you suggest people do while we exist in this four-dimensional time-space continuum? Well, because I know you, I can say both you and I, our creators, told us that we should be in the world but not of the world. So one of the first mm-hmm. things we should be doing is not living the way the world is living. And I chose to do that, and I chose to do it in a tremendous way, especially in the last several years. And one of the way the world's been living is, 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 is living off of debt, more things. You and I know, I told you that even though they didn't do anything wrong, the public storage business is the poster child for what's wrong with America. Our mm-hmm. parents and grandparents never needed public scores. They didn't have that much stuff. So one of the things I, when I sit down with people, and most people don't want to hear it, Jay, that's why I don't have a big clientele no. anymore, but <laughs> less is more. Less mm-hmm. debt, We don't need all the things the world tells us we do. In fact, I really got deactivated politically, and people say, why don't you get with such and such? I say, listen, my prayers to my Lord and Savior, I really feel will do more than anything I can do backing some political movement at Mm -hmm. this point in time. So for me, my faith, my trust in God to know that he's still in charge, and to, to learn what he taught us in the Bible. The Bible's a manual to life. And the second most talked about topic is matters of money and possession. There's not one positive word about debt, and there really is a less is more philosophy that God spoke about. And I think that's how people have to live their lives out. And, and believe me, I hear from so many people that once had much higher living standards and ways. Once they finally mm-hmm. bit the bullet and they realized they didn't need all of that, they have a right. peace and tranquility, like you say, that I have, that they never had yes. before. Oh, I agree with you. I can definitely, uh, I can de- definitely identify with that as well, uh, Peter. You know, I'd like to tell my listeners that uh, they should really go to petergranich.com, petergranich.com, because you have a, a lot of material there and various things, various topics. You mentioned that you you also work with the professional athletes, and there is, um, I think it's. I don't know, there's a section on your website over to the right. Yeah, the uh, download section. I know you, there are some of our best writings at Peter Granish, G-R-A-N-D-I-C-H, one word, petergranish.com. Just go to the left side. You'll see downloads, all the things we've written. You can read the free copy of our book. Uh, and then there's a Peter Speaks, and that's our blog. And if you just put your email in there, anytime we write something on there, it'll be sent out to you. Right, exactly, and uh, I mean, there's things then along the right-hand side too. The sky's the limit, with the sky blue. And I just, just uh, with a minute left or so, Peter, talk to us a little bit about this your relationship with. Um, I guess it's a women's professional soccer league or something. 
Yes, one of the growth industries. It's past our time, Jay, but for the younger folks in the world, soccer has grown to be a major sport being played in the U.S. now. All the kids, especially girls now, participating. And there's actually a growing uh, uh, league in the United States, a women's soccer league. And the team here in New Jersey, which is called Sky Blue, uh, we now entered our third year of a working relationship with them. We not only assist the players and management all with their financial needs, but we help them grow their businesses and, and, and work in the business community. And uh, it's very exciting, and uh, it, it's a growth sport. That and lacrosse are probably the fastest-growing sports now in the U.S., and uh, we're enjoying it in the twilight of my life. Interesting. Well, there's so much more. So it's petergranich.com, folks. Go there. Thank you so much for being with us again, Peter. We'll look to do it again uh, in another few weeks. Um, uh, So all the best to you and God's blessings to you. Same here, Jay. God bless. All right, folks. Well, that is all for this week. Next week, I'm going to be talking to Ron Paul's uh, former chief of staff, Jeff Deist, uh, as well as Daniel McAdams, who is his foreign affairs advisor. We're going to ask both those gentlemen what their thoughts are with respect to uh, the Trump presidency and where we may be headed, both uh, with respect to the economy, which Jeff Dice will talk about, and then foreign affairs and geopolitics with Daniel McAdams. So hope that you will join me next week. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Dinosert is a global leader in carbon emission reduction technologies. Created for use in diesel engines, the hydrogen unit has been proven to reduce carbon emissions by up to 40%, increase torque, improve engine oil quality, and provide up to 19% in fuel savings. Our leading-edge technology is designed for tractor trailers, rail, marine, and newly developed for diesel engine cars. Reducing the amount of greenhouse gases provides benefits to the environment, to communities and businesses, and to our shareholders. Golden Predator Mining Corp., a well-financed gold exploration company operating in Canada's Yukon. Focused on advancing its Three Aces project, a high-grade gold project located in the southeast Yukon with gold and quartz outcrops at surface. Ongoing work includes trenching, road work, drilling, and bulk sampling. Golden Predator also holds the past-producing Brewery Creek project located near Dawson City, Yukon. Golden Predator, a company working closely with Yukon First Nations. Golden Predator trades on the Canadian venture market as GPY and in the USOTC market as NTGSF. Chilean Metals is a Canadian junior exploration company focusing on high potential copper, gold prospects in Chile and Canada. Chilean Metals Zulima property is a Candelaria-like prospect, one of the largest mines in the world. The company has begun its drill program in Chile on its Zulima property and should be completed by the end of February. We also own a 3% royalty on future production on Tech Resources Copa Query property, potentially worth millions of dollars annually. This is the time to invest in Chilean Metals, a discovery story with a hedge. Traded TSX Venture under symbol CMX.